Good morning. Great to see all of you today, to hear the sounds of those children going to their classes. Grateful for those who are working with them regularly Sunday after Sunday. You might have guessed from the songs that we've sung that we're trying to broach the subject today of how to grow as mature disciples on a collective level, the church, the body of Christ. And surely there can be no real maturity unless we actually learn to live together in love and harmony, wouldn't you say? And globally, we might say the church is not learning this lesson very well. Uh, In fact, a recent news article spoke of a mass exodus taking place in the American church. Numerous young adults abandoning the church and abandoning the faith. It's what sociologist Stephen Boulevant calls nonverts. Nonverts. Instead of converts, nonverts. You get it? And they will proceed to educate their families as nuns, but not N-U-N-S, as in religious nuns, but as N-O-N-E-S, nuns. No religion, thank you, non-religious. Well, quite frankly, it's the story of Western Christianity in its twilight years. Did you know that's the day we're living in? And surely this kind of crisis in the church And faith is not limited to the U.S., is it? It's going on all across the Western world. And I think it calls us to pray Psalm 80, where the psalmist cries out for God to restore and revive his people, recognizing the the terrible times that had come upon them and that God alone can heal the depths of our brokenness. He alone can restore us. So I'm wondering if you would read portions of this psalm with me right now. Can we make this our meditation and our prayer together? Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. He's addressing God as the shepherd of Israel, as the one who sits enthroned between the cherubim. You understand that's talking about the mercy seat over the Ark of the Covenant where the blood was sprinkled. That was like God's earthly throne, which ultimately was incarnated in the cross. Begging God, shine forth again. And in verse 3, make your face shine upon us. That's number 6. You recognize the priestly blessing that they were to put upon the people. Begging God to restore I hope this prayer will just be written on your hearts this morning that we may be saved. We go on in the next verses where it says, O Yahweh, God of hosts, how long will you smolder against your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink by the bowlful. 
You make us a bone of contention to our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. Again, you hear that refrain. This is the second time. It'll happen a third time. This is the key to the whole psalm, begging for God's restoration of his people. And now he's going to enter into a little bit of the history. Let's look at it. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea, and it shoots as far as the river. All right, this is the moment of prosperity among God's people. When he planted that vine that he brought up out of Egypt, and it spread, and we think of David's kingdom, Solomon's kingdom, as it spread to its greatest uh, strength, and then the next verses show the other side. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Something has happened. The psalmist attributes it to God. God's the one who broke down the, the walls. We must understand that frequently biblical language expresses itself as if God were responsible because ultimately we understand everything comes from God. The good and the bad, Jeremiah says, are from your hand. Well, because it's all under his control. He has to allow it if it happens. But what's actually happening in Israel, they are reaping what they have sown. Happens in your life and mine too, doesn't it? We go on in the next verses. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Care for this vine, the root that your right hand planted, the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. Pleading for God to make his favor shine upon his people again. In spite of our failures, in spite of our shortcomings, even though we're reaping what we ourselves sowed, would you please have mercy on us? Turn again to care for this vine. And the final stanza. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Revive us and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Yahweh, God of hosts. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. All right, the man of your right hand. In a sense, that's Israel. That's that vine that he brought up. That's the son that he made strong for himself. But now he also calls him the son of man. And we understand that is a Hebrew way of expressing it, Hebrew parallelism, but that's the expression that's going to come to represent the Messiah in whom they would put their hope. Even though he would not be the kind of Messiah they were hoping for, he would be much better than what they ever dreamed of. When God revives us, then we shall not turn back from him. We'll call on his name. 
He will make his face to shine on us and we will be saved. I hope that this prayer will be uh, engraved on your hearts this morning. We'll come back to it, but I hope you'll go back to it and that you will read and meditate on it and make your prayer, make it your prayer for the church. Maybe we need to follow that up with a parable, a visual parable. And I ask you, what do you see happening in this drawing? Well, maybe the first thing that catches your attention is that the boat is still tied to the pier, isn't it? There is this lovely choir singing um, on the pier, oblivious to everything else, singing praises undoubtedly. Someone's painting the mast. Isn't that lovely? Um, And a sail, a rather tattered sail behind it, has a cross on it. Maybe that's an indication we should pay attention to. Someone has even climbed up the mast, you'll notice, and they're pointing Uh, It looks like to a city on the horizon and trying to tell those down below, that's where we need to be going. Don't you imagine him saying that? Do you see the two struggling there at the helm? Seems like there is a power struggle going on there, trying to control the rudder. Another is looking down below to see what's going on with the rudder, see see if maybe he can fix it. Uh, Two rowers are at work. Looks like they're rather at cross purposes with each other uh, and wouldn't be making any progress even if they were rowing together, would they? Because the boat's still tied to the pier. Okay, and how about that shady figure down in the water beneath the boat? boat? I don't know if you can see him well. I think he's got a drill in his hands, maybe intent on some committing some um, um, underwater sabotage. Out beyond the boat, in front. Uh, Do you see that swimmer? Uh, I think he's one who has abandoned ship, don't you? He's leaving it for hopeless. That's not you, is it? All right, nobody said amen. Farther along, there's that figure seeming to stand on the water. Mm, Who could that be? Uh, We all imagine, don't we? Seems he's pointing the way. Finally, there's another boat over there. Do you see it off in the distance? Um... And also over here on this side, seems like it might be a shark fin. Could there be sharks circling in the area? I ask you, is the allegory all too clear? Does it ring true? Does it make you want to laugh or cry? Or maybe you're saying, that could be some other church, but it's not IBC. Is that what you're saying? Maybe it all depends on your angle, your experience. Maybe not everybody experiences it just like you do. Maybe there are more people here than what we've realized that we haven't taken notice of. You know, the Bible actually offers us a lot of parables for the church. Uh, We should pay attention to those as well. Um, the, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. Those are two of the really big ones, aren't they? Well, it also calls us a temple, a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, and it's made up of these living stones. Who would that be? Well, I think it's you and I as believers. Uh, also calls us a chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, God's special possession, his treasure. In fact, we are like Israel God's flock, are we not? A flock of sheep. Is that a compliment? I have to think about that one. Or calls us a vineyard like we read in Psalm 80. Yeah? We are that vineyard, Christ the vine and we the branches, as in John 15. 
Why is church such a challenge? Take notice. All of these figures suggest susceptibility to dangers. Great vulnerability characterizes all of these. The dangers a body has to face and undergo. The temptations and struggles that a bride has to deal with. The wear and tear on a building or a temple. The predators against a flock or against a vineyard. Has it always been this hard? You are answering yes, aren't you? (laughs) Affirmative. All the way back, it has been this hard. In fact, how far back has the church been having to deal with all of these dangers and problems? Well, that's a good question. Uh, Some will immediately respond, oh, it began at Pentecost, coming of the Holy Spirit. But, you know, ecclesiologists will insist that we actually go back to the literal meaning of church uh, in the Greek, that's the word ekklesia, which actually means assembly or congregation or a gathering. Well, hey, this idea already shows up in the Old Testament. So do we have the church in the Old Testament? Well, that's how Stephen referred to it in his church. The ecclesia gathered with Moses in the desert. So maybe we better pay attention here. In fact, some will even suggest that Adam and Eve were intended to be the first expression of church, the gathering of believers for the worship of Yahweh. But of course, their failure to follow him and to remain under his authority led to progressive disaster in that pre-Diluvian society, didn't it? So God started over, didn't he, after the flood with Noah and his family. But following the flood, you will remember that his descendants proved as hard-headed and idolatrous as all those earlier humans. So God had to scatter them over the face of the earth, Babel. And in time, he would start over again with Abraham and his family. These were the new hopefuls through whom God was going to bless all the nations of the earth, all the peoples. That was the promise, you remember. Would God make good on that promise? Well, the project seemed to be prospering at first, but then there were all kinds of trials. There were enemies to face. There was famine, and when they went down to Egypt, there was enslavement for a long time until Moses came along. So there was another kind of new beginning with Moses and the children of Israel. But where did Moses lead them? But into the desert, and they had to wander around there for 40 years, grumbling and griping and falling into more sin. Wow, this project seems difficult, doesn't it? Even when they entered the promised land... The failures, the violence, the idolatry just seem to multiply at every turn. This is biblical history, you know. And after a few generations, finally they got their wish. They acquired their own king. And the first one did not do too well, did he? But then along came King David. Oh, he was a high point in Jewish history and Hebrew history, wasn't he? But then his son and his grandson. And by the fourth generation... The kingdom had been divided into two. And as the years turned into centuries, so many of their kings, who were supposed to be God's representatives, did not follow the Lord. And they led the people into idolatry and sin and false worship. 
Till God finally just let that northern kingdom go. Let them be overrun by their enemies, reaping what they had sowed. God's project really seemed to be turning into a disastrous disappointment. Till finally even the southern kingdom was conquered by their enemies, which led to a matanza, a high death rate, destruction of Jerusalem, destruction of the temple, and Babylonian exile. You remember it. Seventy years were prophesied by Jeremiah. And sure enough, after that time, God opened the door for the return of a remnant. God just didn't give up. There was, sorry, it was already up there, the post-exilic remnant. He just didn't give up, did he? They, the remnant was going to come and rebuild the nation, the temple. It was slow, hard work, overwhelming challenges. Violent and oppressive behaviors continued to characterize God's people but he just wouldn't give up on them. He was so committed to that human family that eventually he came personally to teach them his message and show them the way of the kingdom. And in the process, they turn on him and he becomes the victim. God himself is the victim of the violence that they've been committed, committing. The victim of the story that he's been writing, working on it for so many centuries. But it didn't take him by surprise, did he? No. He had already depicted what would happen in the sacrificial system. He knew that when his innocent one was sent among them, they were going to eat him up. God was prepared for it. In the process, there at the cross, he took all that awful violence into himself with his divine shock absorbers. And he simply declared it forgiven. Declared it with his mouth, acted it out with his body and his suffering all the way to the end. Well, at this point, after the cross, the resurrection, and Pentecost, some would say, now that's where the church really started. But you know, I say there's so much church history to be learned from the people of Israel in the Old Testament. But there's no doubt it is since Pentecost when the Holy Spirit has been unleashed on the world. When the Holy Spirit is fully activated to help us carry out our mission. And in spite of that, how often do we, the New Testament church, find ourselves in this same boat? Do you get my point? Even with the power of the Holy Spirit, how often do we look just like that Old Testament church? The challenge of being church is enormous, isn't it? If it were just church, a social club of some kind, okay. But it's the church of Jesus Christ. And I think it's overwhelming to us today, partly because there's so many changes going on in our culture. Human bonding has become so fragile. Uh, relationships are so precarious. The family is under so much attack. And often we show the same signs of weakness as we see in the rest of society. It, uh, it's really rather overwhelming. Maybe you saw last Friday how here in Spain, Parliament has passed la ley trans. The transgender law is now a reality in Spain. With sex change available for children, as early as age 12, obligatory 
sex ed in all schools, all ages, according to the new ideology, and the propaganda battle about how wonderful it is to change sex is already in full swing, and that sex change will be paid for now by Spanish taxpayers since all have access to this full health care. Besides that, they've added abortion for 16-year-old girls without parental consent. All of this is part of the package deal. They're celebrating it as light overcoming darkness. That's how progressives are celebrating it. It's being challenged. The laws are already being challenged in the court system. They're not likely to be successful. The rebellion is first against God, and then it's against nature itself. There are those who are speaking out. Case of Anglican Archbishop in Uganda. Fíjate. The Ugandan Archbishop has reprimanded the General Synod of the Church of England for their new decision to bless same-sex unions. Even though the Church of England pretends to still hold to the traditional doctrine of marriage, so the Ugandan Archbishop is chiding them for their blatant contradiction, seeing their full intention to bless that which God calls sin. Sounds like calling good evil to me and calling evil good. Well, the archbishop put it this way. He says, the Church of England has departed from the Anglican faith and are now false teachers. Amen, brother. So in the West, the church is either accommodating to, capitulating to mainstream society, or it's being judged as an outmoded form of community, irrelevant, an enemy of human progress. I honestly fear that we may be entering a new kind of dark ages. Besides that, thanks to church leaders who've had moral failures and tried to cover up mm, affairs, mm, sexual harassment, mm, child abuse, other scandals, the church is just considered more and more suspect with ulterior motives, manipulative tactics for its own benefit. In effect, the church is becoming so discredited that we cannot simply continue to do things the same way we have always done and expect to see any results. The church is in desperate need of a total reset, a return to our roots Desperate for the power of the Holy Spirit of Jesus himself to help us let go of worldly cultural baggage that just represents nostalgia for the flesh. Isn't that an awful expression? How can the church have nostalgia for the flesh? It did not bring us anything positive to live under the rule of the flesh. So is there any hope on the horizon? We need that restoration that Psalm 80 talks about. Contrast with me, if you will, the cases of two American universities. On the one hand, you have Ohio State University that last week was celebrating Sex Week. 
featuring all kinds of workshops on sexuality, sexual identity, multiple events promoting discussions on everything from ethical alternatives to mainstream pornography. Oh boy, ethical and pornography in the same sentence? I have trouble with that one. Or there's this panel on ethical non-monogamy. Non-monogamy, that sounds like newspeak for polygamy, right? (laughs) That is what we're talking about, isn't it? Yeah, that one is about fostering healthy communication in polyamorous relationships. You know, to help people navigate this heteronormative society which is no longer considered healthy. Heteronormative? Mm. Trash. That's the new progressive uh, value today. We better get used to it. Oh, there was one more that's rather interesting. A workshop, workshop on the basics of bondage uh, and other kinky sex with ropes provided for the attendees. I tell you what, the public university campus, in America at least, has become an institution that's serving as a training facility for a worldview that is diametrically opposed to the Bible and to Christianity. This is the day we live in, folks. But just three and a half hours away from Columbus, Ohio, in Wilmore, Kentucky, the campus of Asbury University, on February the 8th, just 10 days ago, a morning worship service at the campus chapel turned into an overnight prayer session and then just turned into an ongoing revival that has yet to cease 10 days later, 24-7. What is God doing at Asbury, just three and a half hours from the other campus? Word spread quickly on social media about this impassioned worship and prayer service that was going on with confession of sin, people getting right with God, getting right with each other, and thousands are flocking to this little town. Its population is only 6,000, but people are hungry to get in on what's going on there, coming from far and wide, just hoping to get a taste of this spiritual phenomenon. Revival in the church and in the world comes from refocusing on Jesus. Refocusing on Jesus. His presence, His power, His truth grace. Henry Blackaby, who wrote the book Experiencing God and many other books, he put it like this. God is mainly interested in your walk with him much more than his interest in your completing a task for him. Wow, isn't that comforting? He just wants to be with you and you with him so that you learn That he is what most satisfies our desires and our hungers. He's the treasure. In the words of Wang Mingdao, who was 20th century leader of the church in China, Wang Mingdao said, Simplify your life and get to know God. Voice of experience. He was imprisoned for 25 years for his faith, deprived of all that had given meaning to his life as a Christian worker. And suddenly, he had nothing to do. 
except to go deeper in his relationship with God. 25 years. He says for years it was the most marvelous experience he had ever known. But the prison cell was the means that God used to open his eyes. And he discovered there that Jesus is enough. Have you discovered that? When you don't have anything else to do, oh, I'm bored. You don't have to be bored. Get to know Jesus. Wow. And Jesus' message and mission, he came to humanize God so that you and I could get to know him personally, not just as a heavenly abstraction, but as an earthly reality. He came to humanize God so that we could know him personally and be saved. I think we're also called to do that, to humanize God for this world. Now, it will mean... Hmm. Gracias a Dios. <laughs> Por, si, si esto es lo que ha encontrado. Magnífico. That was so timely. I don't know whose it was, and I don't care, but <laughs> it was very timely. You couldn't have planned it if you'd tried. What was Jesus' message and mission? He came to humanize God. It's going to require that you and I learn to distinguish between the institutional church, which is the organization, and the church as a movement of the Holy Spirit, which is the organism. Do we get the difference? It's both. The church is both. God calls us to do the organizing, organize ourselves for ministry and for witness, for being God's hands and feet in the world. But it's first the organism, the organic reality of church is the presence of the Holy Spirit thanks to the Lord Jesus in our lives, in our faith in Him. That's the important part, the most important part. And the Holy Spirit wants to lead us toward a deep renewal of the good news, the vision of Jesus in all His glory and love as God's personal emissary to the wayward children that he so longed for. Jesus is the one who invites us to participate in the renewal of his body in the world. Are we saying yes to him with all our heart? This is a humanizing mission that we're involved in. In this day and age when everything is going robotic, in this day and age when they really want to erase the idea of image of God in you, no, the progressives don't like that. They would like to get rid of it. Is, I'll ask you this. Is your sin primarily about your infractions of the law? Ooh, I didn't make it. A, ooh, I didn't make that. Oop, ooh, I'm falling short. Is that what your sin is really about? I tell you, no. It's a relational problem, not a legal problem. The cross was not about legalism. As if God needed Jesus to die so that God could forgive. God couldn't forgive otherwise. No, no, that's not it. Jesus was God in the flesh who came to dramatize before us his forgiveness 
even when we did our worst to him. The Old Testament God was a forgiving God. He's described in the, in the, uh, the, the Jewish creed as compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, great in mercy and faithfulness. That's the God that Jesus came to represent and whom he represented faithfully all his life, all the way to the, cl- the cross, all the way to his last drop of blood. He was humanizing God so that God wasn't just a theoretical abstraction up there talking from heaven. He talked in our language from a human body like ours. So our primary focus in the church can't be about church programs, church structures, uh, strategies, committees, bylaws, rules. We've got to be focused on deepening relationships so that we actually become instruments for helping others learn to follow Jesus as their passion in life. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It's in your spiritual DNA if you have come to call on him and trust in him as Savior. You just want to go deeper with him. He becomes so personalized to you that you begin to humanize God for others. Humanizing discipleship. That's what it's about. Every true believer is called to get involved in this task, helping build up the body of Christ, humanizing God. Three simple steps. I want to leave you with that. And this is not the whole story, but this is just the fringe of the garment, okay? Revival of the body of Christ always starts with prayer. All kinds of prayer. Prayer is not boring. If you learn to groan with the Holy Spirit, he's going to teach you how exciting and dynamic, sometimes painful prayer is. But this is the battle. This is the real battle. It starts with prayer. I'm praying especially for our young people that God will so move in your insides that you will get started on this trajectory of following Jesus as your passion in life. He's your hope for doing something meaningful with your life, something that matters. He's the one who changes us on the inside where you thought, oh, I'll never get rid of this or that or the other. He does. And a church that prays together impacts the world together in Jesus' name. Number two, revival of Christ's body continues as we determine to break the ice Take the initiative, break down and overcome barriers, reach out to people around you. Right here at church, do you usually sit in the same place on Sunday? Do you know the people sitting near you? If you ask anybody their name today, do it, break the ice. You won't have to look very hard to find it. It's part of your spiritual DNA to break the barriers, break the ice, reach out and touch. That's what we're about in Jesus' name. And once you've done it at church, number three is easy. Then we practice here, go out and do the same thing with other people in our lives outside the church, family, neighbors, co-workers, even strangers, sharing the grace of Jesus, even with those who don't agree with us, even those who may speak unkindly about us, backward Christians that we are. 
making God's love human and personal. Will you pray with me as we get ready to celebrate this love through communion? Holy Savior, we confess first of all that we are, we are not up to this task. But you have promised that in our weakness, your strength will be made manifest. Oh, precious Savior, call us to revival. Restore us for your name's sake and for your kingdom in this world that is so needy. Lord Jesus, be in our midst as we participate in these elements that represented your sacrifice of love on our behalf. Walk among us, Lord Jesus. Call us to yourself that we may know you and we may agree, we may commit to humanizing God in your name, by your power, for the sake of those around us. Thank you, blessed Savior, in Jesus' name. Amen.